Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The little boy from Bay Como left an enormous legacy. We are remembering Brian Mulroney, whose 10 years as prime minister and two majority governments gave us the free trade agreement, stronger environmental protections, the Meech Lake Accord, and the GST. More than 100 Palestinians are believed to have been killed as aid trucks arrived in northern Gaza. A BBC correspondent in Jerusalem tells us what caused those moments of deadly chaos. Pharma scare. Two provinces have already said they want out of the federal government's much-anticipated pharmacare plan, and the scheme is far from fully costed. We'll ask the NDP's health critic if the framework needs work. Weapon of mass destruction. A mass shooting survivor tells us the U.S. Supreme Court needs to uphold a ban on bump stocks, devices that allow shooters to fire hundreds of bullets per minute. Symbolic defeat. Quebec's Court of Appeal says there's nothing wrong with the province's ban on public workers wearing religious symbols. So our guest says there must be something wrong with the province. And she's close to packing her bags. And dogged pursuit. A group of researchers determined that one of the best ways to get a dog to like you is to follow it around. A breakthrough in the challenging field of getting dogs to like you. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that offers the following examples. In 1984, Brian Mulroney and the Progressive Conservative Party won one of the biggest landslide victories in Canadian history, taking 75% of the seats in the House of Commons. They won another majority in 1988. And you only need to look at Mr. Mulroney's legacy to know that he governed like he'd won two majorities, bringing in major legislation on everything from the economy to the environment. He struck the free trade deal with the U.S., he sold off Crown Corporations, he negotiated the Meech Lake Accord but could not get it passed, he signed on to major international environmental agreements before most countries were paying attention, and he introduced the much-loathed GST. Brian Mulroney died today. He was 84 years old. He rarely raised his immediately recognizable baritone. For example, before the 1988 election, he debated Liberal leader John Turner, who argued that the free trade agreement was a betrayal and threatened Canadian sovereignty. Here's an excerpt from that debate, and listen closely to how he delivers his dismissal of Mr. Turner's argument. I today, sir, as a Canadian, believe genuinely in what I am doing. I believe it is right for Canada. I believe that in my own modest way, I am nation building because I believe this benefits Canada and I love Canada. We built a country, east and west and north, we built it on an infrastructure that deliberately resisted the continental pressure of the United States. For 120 years we've done it. With one signature of a pen, you've reversed that 
thrown us into the north-south influence of the United States With a duck. and will reduce us, will reduce us, I'm sure, to a colony of the United States we because when the economic levers go, the political independence is sure to follow. Mr. Turner, with a document that's cancelable on six months' notice, be serious. Joe Clark was a longtime colleague of Brian Mulroney, also a former leader of the federal Progressive Conservative Party and former Prime Minister of Canada. We reached him in Ottawa. Joe Clark, I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah, it is, it's not entirely a shock mm -hmm. that uh, Brian has died. We knew he was unwell, uh, but uh, it's a great loss to the country. Uh, and uh, I, despite our occasional differences, I have the greatest admiration for his uh, contributions to our country oh. and was always an admirer of his, uh, both his vision in being able to see the possibilities for change, but also in his extraordinary capacity uh, to negotiate his way forward. I want to talk to you about those times where you disagreed as well, but at first I wanted to ask you, sir, can you share, um, as much as you're comfortable sharing, you know, how he was reflecting on his time as Prime Minister? Oh, he was proud of his time as Prime Minister, as he should have been. Uh, and uh, But he was not sort of bound up in that. He retained a very active interest in, in other events in Canada and, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, he um, sympathized, I think it's fair to say, with other governments dealing with uh, tough problems. He gave advice. Uh, to them from uh, from time to time, but in my experience with him, he was not despondent. He wasn't despondent by nature. He was a very cheerful, forward-looking person. Tough sometimes, obviously. Uh, he uh, uh, was involved in conflicts as well as successes, but uh, I think that he would have uh, wanted to be remembered as a happy warrior, and I think he was. A happy warrior. Well, you saw all of the sides of Brian Mulroney throughout your your professional and personal relationship. But if we go back to 1976, the convention, you won, he lost, he was not happy about it. What do you remember about that time? Well, it was a, um, I think no one is uh, happy about losing is the first thing to say. Uh, he was a very strong competitor. I think probably uh, he benefited from losing uh, in terms of the opportunity it gave him both to expand his his horizons afterwards and the reflection that he uh, he undoubtedly made when uh, he ran again for the the leadership. How do you come back from that kind of rivalry and friction? Because you did go on to work together on the most important issues that the country w was facing at the time. How do you come back from that? Well, there's a sense in which this was not personal. I mean, he defeated me and I defeated him. Uh, but uh, we both got over that. We had been drawn, you know, we were both, we first met literally decades ago. And what we had in common is that we were uh, young kids uh, in our teens from small towns in different parts of a big country. We were part of a political party in which we were both uh, enthusiastic members. Uh, we worked together. Uh, and I think that that commonality of origins and the sense that um, uh, we were both interested in public service in its best sense. Did he ever talk about regrets? Uh, you know, I wonder how he reflected on the, the controversy and the criticism, because there was a lot of that as well. That's part of his legacy. 
There was, and he was a realist about that. He knew that that was uh, part of what was going to happen. I think he regretted it. He regretted it particularly when it uh, uh, might have hurt others, his family uh, and others. Uh, but he understood that uh, that was inevitable in a life in politics. And quite properly, uh, he reflected much more upon the remarkable things he was uh, able to do. Uh, that's quite genuine about Brian. He uh, uh, he did not enjoy uh, being ill in his periods of illness, uh, but he remained very uh, both proud of and in a position to learn from uh, things that he had un- he had come to understand as uh, as prime minister and as a party leader, uh, and uh, proud to have lived a good life. What did he teach you? Huh, that's an interesting question. I think we taught one another uh, how to be colleagues despite differences. Uh, there's no question that uh, when we were together in cabinet, uh, we had a genuine respect each for the qualities of the other. Often those were quite complementary qualities. Uh, but um, uh, I think it's fair to say that after uh, he became prime minister and I became uh, foreign minister, uh, we focused on moving forward together. We put our differences in the past where they had arisen. And I and I, I liked him. That's the other thing about Brian. You couldn't help but uh, like that buoyant Irish optimism. Uh, and, uh, and I admired, I have to say this, his extraordinary hard work. Sometimes near the end of our term in office, and we would seat, we were seated together around the cabinet table, I would worry about how hard he was working, the toll it was taking on him. Uh, and uh, he, uh, But he was absolutely serious about it. That was his job. That's what he did. Uh, and I admired him for it. We disagreed on some policy issues from time to time. I won't go into what they were. They were not divisive uh, disagreements. Uh, we were different people. Uh, I think that we both came to understand the qualities of the other and... Uh, I think, in a sense, we both came to count upon uh, our capacity to work together mm-hmm. despite those differences. I'm jo- going to miss him. Uh, the country's going to miss him. Joe Clark, I thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Joe Clark is a former leader of the Federal Progressive Conservative Party and Prime Minister of Canada. We reached him in Ottawa. And much more coverage of this story is available right now at cbcnews.ca. They arrived before the sun rose in Gaza City this morning, looking desperately for food, surrounding a convoy carrying aid. And within a few hours, more than 100 Palestinians were dead and many others injured. The Hamas-run health ministry says at least 112 people were killed after Israeli troops opened fire. Israel's Ministry of Defense says many died after being trampled in a stampede for food supplies. News of the incident reverberated in capitals around the world, including Washington, where President Joe Biden said it underscored the need for a ceasefire deal. Paul Adams is the BBC's diplomatic correspondent. We reached him in Jerusalem. Paul, I've had a chance to look at the IDF videos, those aerial shots of people surrounding 
these aid trucks. What do those images say to you? They are so powerful. Uh, it's, it's weird. I mean, here are shots taken from a drone. It's some kind of night vision taken at, um, you know, while it was still dark. You can't see anyone's faces. And yet, I don't think I have seen such a powerful illustration of the despair that is rife in Gaza, in particular in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Those people surrounding, climbing onto the trucks, running between the trucks. It is just an incredibly powerful set of images. And I've also seen images by local cameramen on the ground. And those also convey the the complete sense of chaos that reigned as uh, Israeli troops opened fire for reasons that we still don't quite understand. The Israelis said that they felt that their position uh, was being threatened at one point. Mm -hmm. They opened fire. This resulted in something of, of a stampede. And it seems the trucks, perhaps in an effort to get out of harm's way, started to move forward in the midst of this crowd. And it does seem as though, tragically, a significant number of people were crushed to death. Who was in charge of these trucks, Paul? These were private contractors. Uh, This was not a a convoy being run by the UN, which has not run convoys into northern Gaza for some weeks now. Uh, It's emerged this evening that the Israelis have been running their own aid convoys for the past four days. This is following a decision at the beginning of the week by the Israeli government to try and address this problem increasingly widespread problem of looting and kind of chaotic scenes surrounding aid convoys. So they've been doing it themselves. This was the fourth night in a row. They said that the convoy so far had worked uh, without any problem. But clearly, this one ran into terrible problems. And I think this was a an object lesson in, you know, you might think you're securing an aid convoy. You might think that you're doing the utmost to try and get aid to where it's needed most. But in a situation, in a place where uh, people are so desperate after almost five months of war and where law and order has completely broken down and people are essentially fending for themselves, problems like this are, are kind of inevitable. You, I mean, even before this, this latest catastrophe several days ago, you reported on just how desperate people were, the, this kind of swarming around any aid deliveries and people desperate for even the most basic food this is flour you know it doesn't get much more basic than that there were some pictures the other day of children scrabbling in the dirt picking up handfuls of flour and stuffing it in their pockets that's how desperate people have become for the most basic foodstuffs the last un convoy into the north was in on january the 23rd they have tried subsequently but found that the situation was too chaotic Mm -hmm. And so in the north, where there are around 300,000 civilians uh, who have stayed there, despite, you know, the fact that the war came first to them uh, months ago, those people have seen so little outside assistance that it's a kind of almost, I hesitate to say, but it's an almost feral existence now as people try to survive. I know there are still a lot of questions and things trying to be answered and sorted out in this in this latest incident. But is there a way to know who really is to blame and who bears the responsibility of what happened? 
the the immediate blame perhaps not i suspect we're unlikely to find out exactly why those israeli troops felt menaced by the presence of this crowd were there people in the crowd with guns were they posing a genuine threat to the israeli military we probably will never find out i think what you can say though with some certainty is that after almost five months of war even if you think as the israelis say repeatedly that they have no objection to aid trucks entering the gaza strip that you're trying to do what you can to alleviate the dreadful humanitarian consequences these are the consequences of this wholesale invasion of the gaza strip and the massive monstrous levels of destruction that have accompanied it and so in that sense the responsibility is pretty clear of course israel will also argue that this was a war that it did not seek that it was the appalling hamas atrocities of october the 7th last year that set in train this whole awful chain of events but this you know we are seeing now the I would argue the inevitable consequences of everything that has gone on in the last four and a half months. And Paul, just before we let you go, you've been also reporting on, you know, where things stand, the possibility of a ceasefire. What kind of impact or fallout do you think this incident, these deaths may have? Well, Joe Biden, who has been pushing so hard to get a ceasefire deal in place and who was saying just a few days ago that he thought it might happen by the end of the weekend or Monday, Uh, He has already said that he thinks that what has happened today is likely to complicate those negotiations. It's hard to see how it wouldn't. We're also hearing that the Israeli delegation that has been in Doha, the capital of Qatar, for the last few days, talking to the Egyptians, the Americans, the Qataris, and indirectly uh, to Hamas, that that delegation is back here in Israel. Now, we don't know if that constitutes a breakdown or just some reporting back to base is the chance of a ceasefire still there? Yes, but I suspect it's not quite as strong a chance as, as it might have been 24 hours ago. Paul, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Paul Adams is the BBC's diplomatic correspondent. He's in Jerusalem. Quebec's Court of Appeal has given the all-clear to the province's ban on public workers wearing religious symbols. A lower court had already found that the Legault government's invocation of the notwithstanding clause shielded the law from discrimination complaints, but today's ruling goes further. It eliminates the lower court's decision to carve out an exception for English-language schools. That included schools like Montreal's Westmount High, which is where Sabrina Giffrali teaches ethics, religion, and culture. We reached Ms. Giffrali in Montreal. Sabrina, I know you were busy working when our producer called you and and told you about this ruling. What did you think when you heard the news? Uh, When the news was broken to me, honestly, um, I had to take a moment, uh, almost like a moment of silence. Um, I really felt punched in the gut. um, And I had to think about why. And and then as I was going through uh, the news reports, there's a couple of things that I find striking. Number one, not only the ruling was 
just a step back in uh, the future of our children, but it also seems that the ruling voided the previous exception for English school boards mm-hmm. um, in Bill 21, and that also felt like another punch in the gut. I suppose the, the two things that um, give me a bit of glimmer is that uh, there will be an escalation to the Supreme Court, mm. but on a teacher level, it's just devastating. We'll talk about the potential for that escalation to the Supreme Court of Canada in, in just a moment, but what will it mean for you, this decision? How will it affect you? Uh, I mean, personally, I, I am part of the Muslim community, although I do not wear hijab, but the point is, it affects me as I got into my job. I mean, for me personally, being a teacher is both personal and professional. And I grew up in a Quebec with Quebec teachers who looked at me when I was a young girl and basically said, you can be anything you want in this country. I'm I'm a Canadian. I'm a 10th generation Canadian. And now um, I felt for a very long time since the inception of this bill, now the Loi 21, that this bill took away the right for me to look into the eyes of my students, no matter what their diverse background is, and say, you can be anything you want in Quebec. Um, I think it's pretty shameful, and um, I'm really, I'm actually quite upset about it. As many others are, uh, and and I can relate to, to being in a classroom like that and having teachers, you know, tell you anything is possible as well. So I can hear in your voice the, uh, the emotion connected to that yeah. shift that you're feeling. Uh, Guillaume Rousseau, who is a lawyer with Mouvement Laïque Québécois, said today, quote, It is a great victory for all of those who support a secular Quebec, and it is especially a victory for those who support Quebec's liberty and Quebec's autonomy, end quote. This is about autonomy and liberty for Quebec, for Mr. Rousseau. Well, actually, he said it. He said for those who support. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in some ways, his statement is exclusionary by nature. He said for all those, meaning that the rest of us, what, too bad for us? Tompi? Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's quite exclusionary. And, all, and then, to be very honest, it goes in line with the Quebec that I experience as a racialized person. So it doesn't actually surprise me. And I have to beg the question, uh, when you impose secularism, um, there are also collaborative natures. And when you ignore the religious aspect of people's identity... In fact, you ignore part of them. And what Quebec is continuous to do, with the support of Canada at this point, because the premier, the prime minister is not interfering, is basically saying that if you live in this province under the guise of the law and autonomy and secularism, you should not portray your full self, which is contradictory to what we grew up understanding in our charter of freedom of rights. So we'll leave that there. But uh, congratulations to those that he believes is part of Quebec, because now he's just reinforced that I'm not part of Quebec. So I appreciate that. The English Montreal School Board has said this decision, quote, sends a message of intolerance and exclusion to our students and their families, end quote. So so they are expressing the same kinds of feelings or, or that, that you are as well. So when you hear that, do you do you feel the support that you are not alone in these feelings? Well, I'm really happy to be part of a board that expresses those sentiments. It's, it's nice to know that I'm working with an employer that agrees. Um, I will say, however, it does push me to pack my bags a bit faster. You're going to leave? 
I think it is. Yeah, I think we're heading that way. I, I mm-hmm. since I, I'll be very honest, since Bill Twenty One came out, um, I often tell my friends that that was the beginning of the end in the divorce between Quebec and I. Um, for folks who are listening, I am a born Quebecer, born, raised, and educated, and have benefited from a lot of the advancements in this province. But when you take away the right for me as a teacher to tell a student you can be anything, that's where I draw the line in the profession for myself. And if the Supreme Court were to uphold this decision? We'll see. I I don't know if I have any more hope. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping. Um, I think fundamentally when people are thinking about, oh, the law and the, you know, the state of secularism, I just want people to remember you're looking into someone's eyes, a young person who is a Canadian, a Quebecois, and telling them, I'm really sorry, but because of what you practice, you are not welcome in certain professions. That, to me, is the bottom line. And I really think people need to remember that. What are you going to tell your students? The truth. (laughs) I'm an ethics teacher. I tell them all sides of the story. I will present all sides of the story. I will present the article that you mentioned. I will present the other article. I will let them. They are very smart kids, I teach. How old? And let them make their own decisions. Even if they oppose mine, I don't mind them opposing mine. It means the critical thinking is working. What grades do you teach? I teach 7, 8, 10, and 11. And what have they been saying as this process? I'm sure you've discussed it before now as well, well they're right? they're on March break. So what mm-hmm. they're saying is, woohoo, we don't have to see the teachers for a week. <laughs> But when we come back, this, they certainly will, they will know and they will come and find me because I still do wear a, a Bill 21, anti-Bill 21 pin. So I'm sure they will come looking for me. But it is, it's a sad day. It's a sad day for those of us who are different in this province, born in this province, yet continue to be segregated into different classes of citizenship. Sabrina, I thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Sabrina Jafrali teaches ethics, religion, and culture at Westmount High School in Montreal. We reached her in Montreal. In Quebec City this afternoon, Premier Francois Legault said in French that today's ruling is, quote, truly a beautiful victory for the Quebec nation. Secularism is a principle that unites us as a nation in Quebec, unquote. Mike Yeager is turning 14 today. He is also turning 56, depending on how you count. The Humboldt Saskatchewan resident is a leap year baby, born February 29th, 1968. And he's not celebrating with a party at home tonight or going out for dinner at a nice restaurant. Mr. Yeager's on a cruise with a bunch of other leaplings. We caught up with him on board earlier today after a birthday party. Mike, happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> how was the party? It was good. It was a lot of fun. We had lots of people dressed up and ready for a birthday bash. Dressed up as what? Oh, everyone was dressed up. Uh, most most were like business casual or okay. some were in gowns. Um, it was, it was a, a real birthday party with 70 people that are all celebrating together today. So 14 can be a very good year, depending on, you know, how, how you look at it. But not so much if you want to have a drink to celebrate. How'd you get around that? Oh, I still have my driver's license that shows I'm 56. 
<laughs> but do you do you like to act like you're 14 sometimes? Do you use that as an excuse, your birthday? Um, you know what? I'm going to have to defer that to my wife. <laughs> She'll probably say yes all the time. <laughs> Is she there? Yes, yeah, she's right here. Let me, let me ask her. Sure, right here. What was the question? Uh, sorry, I don't know your name. This is Neil Shannon. in the studio. Shannon, I was asking Mike yes. if he uses the fact that he's a leapling uh, as an excuse to act like a 14-year-old instead of a 50-something. Um, you know, some of the time, yes. <laughs> but I think that's with most adult men at the no. age of 56. <laughs> I have my moments. Well, you're having a great time, I can tell. She takes good care of me. Oh, that's that's sweet. How did you all get together, all 70 or so of you, to celebrate? Well, it's it's a really long story, and it dates back to Renelle Dawn in Oregon, who started the Leap Year, uh, what is it called? The Honor Society, Honor Society of Leap Day Babies. She's one of the first Leaplings to create any kind of events. Yeah. And in 2018, she convinced our host uh, of this year to, to do a cruise and invite people along. So in 2020, they had their first Leapling cruise. Uh, we did not attend that year. We didn't know about it. So as word spreads, more and more people jump on. So 2024, is this This is this year, and we've got 70 Leaplings yeah. that are here. Do you oh, always do time. have a big bash, or is this sort of the biggest, the most luxurious that you've had? I mean, 14, you got to mark it, right? For me personally, <laughs> I think this, this tops in, uh, this would be ranking up in the top. This, this has been absolutely an amazing experience. We have met so many fun, fresh, exciting people. These Leaplings, everyone thinks we're regular people, but we're not. <laughs> we're very different. We're a very different breed. We, are, we take fun to the extreme. <laughs> what are some of those, those traits that are unique to Leaplings, apart uh, from being Shannon loving? I'll that one. <laughs> yes, Shannon, um, as an so outside observer. really... <laughs> so some are, are very fun loving uh very uh outgoing i think is probably one of the uh traits some are more introverted i i kind of flip between introvert and yeah. extreme excitable um <laughs> but many many are are showing their excitement traits well it's a great sense of community i bet it's a hundred percent we have met some quality people here have you always loved being a leapling or did you have to grow into no, that? I had to grow into it. For many, many years, I, I really didn't like it. And it's just now in the last few, the few birthdays I've had that I've really embraced it. Was it because it only came four years? Is that why you didn't like it or you didn't like being so different than everybody yeah, else? Yeah, yeah. and I had, a, I had a brother that was 11 months older than me and his birthday was, was uh, he used to make fun of mine. I guess I could Brothers. put it that way. Well, I bet he's jealous of your cruise now. Uh, yeah, maybe. I'll have to ask him one day. <laughs> Do you demand, uh, you know, more presents, for presents every time your birthday comes around? I would. I, I never really talk about gifts or oh. cake or parties. I'll, I'll go with the flow. And it's funny because social media doesn't recognize February 29th as a calendar day. So on non-leap year days, I get messages for days wishing happy birthday. Whether it's the 25th, the 26th, the 28th, <laughs> March 1st, people just don't seem to know when my birthday is until it hits on an actual 29. Right. Well, at least they're still marking it. That must feel nice. So do you do something on the off years? In my younger years, on March 1st, I would recognize it. Okay. In my most recent non-leap years, 
I would celebrate the two, three days that the people are, are wanting me to. So I'll celebrate the 28th and the first. If, if that's what my, my people around Listen, me want, then that's what I'll do. So uh, where are you guys sailing right now? What's next on this big birthday journey? Our cruise actually ends tomorrow. We land in Miami in the morning mm-hmm. and then we're doing an Everglades tour and then we fly home. You, you think this is going to be a, a regular thing now every year? Well, every four years, I should say. (laughs) We're definitely going to make an event. I don't know if we're going to do the cruise every year. Uh, There's some preliminary discussions about keeping it inland next year, just because sometimes cruising is cumbersome for some people. So some aren't able to come. So there's discussions about doing something within the continental United States next next time. But the same group, you think? Oh, the same group and more because we want it to build and and we're going to go after the world record, actually, the world record Uh of having the most people in one place celebrating their birthday on the same day at the same time. That's our goal. Our goal is to crush that world record. Before we let you go, is there something that non-leaplings can learn from you and your new friends about how to live? You know what? We, We say as leaplings, we're forever young which means live every day. That's good advice, Mike. Because you you never know. You never know. That's great advice, Mike. Happy birthday. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Mike Yeager of Saskatchewan and his wife, Shannon. He's celebrating his birthday today along with dozens of others who were born on February 29th. Dogs, why aren't they more friendly? We've tried everything to get them to stop being so aloof. We've given them treats, nothing. We've tried to engage them by picking up common sticks and throwing them, nothing. We've asked them repeatedly in funny voices, whom is a good dog? The implication being that it is the very dog we're asking, which should be pleasing, but nothing. If only there were some way to make dogs like us. But... Who's that scratching to get in? It's science, and it's got an exciting new study which divulges the long-awaited secret of how to befriend nature's haughtiest creature. That secret is as follows. Follow. For their new study, scientists from Aix-Marseille University let two groups of dogs roam around in an open field for 15 minutes. The first group of dogs were each followed doggedly around by a researcher that they had not previously met, The second group of dogs researchers basically ignored. When the 15 minutes ended for both groups, researchers talked to the dogs briefly and then walked away. Now, at that point, the dogs that had been followed by researchers followed the researchers closely. The dogs that hadn't didn't or followed at a greater distance. The suggestion, according to the scientists, is that a lot of mammals mirror the actions of their mammal colleagues. So if we mirror dogs' actions, they consider us to be pals. At last, a possible method of connecting with a dog despite its tough, dignified, frosty exterior. Maybe now it'll be less standoffish, because until now, a dog has been a tough mutt to crack.
Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. As you've been hearing on the news, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney has died. In the days and hours ahead, there will be many voices from across Canada and around the world remembering him and his legacy in this country. But right now, we're going to talk to Mr. Mulroney's former Chief of Staff, Derek Burney. He's in Golden, Colorado. Derek Burney, this is a, a difficult night for many people, so I appreciate you making time for us, and, and I'm sorry for your loss. Yes, well, thank you. It's a very sad day indeed, sad day for Canada. I spoke with, with Joe Clark um, earlier yeah. in our program, uh, and he said he said something similar, and I asked, I'll ask you what I asked him. When was the last time you spoke with Brian Mulroney? It was around Christmas. Mm. Were you able yeah, to say your goodbyes? Remember. Well, I, I didn't realize it was that uh, that imminent. Frankly, I I knew he was not doing well, and tried to encourage him as best I could, but it still came as a shock when I learned about it today. You saw a side of him that that many people did not see. What kind of a person? What kind of a man was he to you? <laughs> well, he was demanding. I can tell you that. <laughs> Um, you had to be on your toes and ready for calls at 2 o'clock in the morning with whatever was going on in the world because he wanted to be totally on top of it. But on top of as well as that, he, he was a people person. He liked people. He had the support of his caucus, even when the polls were in, uh, in the teens, as he would say. Uh, but the caucus was always solidly behind him. There was never any breakout. And he made a great impression on world leaders in to, to an extent that's very rare for Canadian prime ministers, in my opinion. I mean, he had a great relationship, obviously, with the presidents Reagan and Bush in the United States. But he also had good relations with people like Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl, and, you know, the list goes on with the Japanese prime ministers of the, the day. And he was infectious in his manner at the G7 meetings in particular, in the way he cultivated these relationships. And then... You know, beyond that, he had an extraordinary relationship with Nelson Mandela. So he, he covered uh, a lot of territory uh, as prime minister and left uh, an indelible uh, legacy as far as I'm concerned. Where did that ability to connect with people in so, you know, politicians generally, uh, well, the good ones anyway, are able to connect with people. But, but he had something special, as you've said, and others have noted as well. Where did that come from? I know, only know that he was a politician from about the time he was two years old. <laughs> so he, he started early and had a lot of experience. But, what was he uh, doing no, at two he, years old? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> but even, even when he was, you know, in university, uh, that's when I first met him. I mean, he was very active in student politics. I was too. We came across one another at the Eastview Hotel in Ottawa, of all places. Uh, but way back in the 1958-59, something like that. Right. And I was probably one of the first public servants he met after becoming prime minister because 
he wanted to go to Washington within a week of being sworn in as our prime minister. And I happened to be serving as assistant deputy minister for the United States at what was then external affairs. So we connected because of that visit. And I think it was a relationship that uh, evolved over the entire nine years that he was prime minister because I went to other senior positions in external affairs. I accompanied him on trips to Asia. Uh, I then became his chief of staff, which was an unusual uh, assignment for so-called diplomat. Uh And then uh, I I spent the final four years as ambassador in Washington. So in each of those jobs, (coughs) excuse me, I was directly connected to him uh, in a very, in a very close way and and, uh, a way that brought us wonderful memories, both of us. We have wonderful memories of our times together. Is there one that you would like to share with us? Well, I think the most important for me was the conclusion of the free trade agreement with the United States. It was in jeopardy uh, towards the end of uh, whatever year it was, 87, I guess. And um, he decided that I should lead the delegation to Washington to conclude those negotiations, win or lose, or right or wrong, or whatever. Uh, which I did, and it was a combination of him, his direct efforts with uh, the president, Reagan, uh, and my uh, negotiations with Jim Baker, who was the secretary at the Treasury at the time, that brought the agreement uh, home. And I think the results of that agreement and its twin NAFTA have been very beneficial for Canada. And so I take you know a certain amount of pride in the fact that we achieved it because it wasn't the most popular idea in Canada when it first came about. Uh, but, but there were other things, like the acid rain agreement. We pursued that for 10 years with the Americans and couldn't get a look in. Brian Mulroney never failed to raise it in his meetings with Ronald Reagan, even though Ronald Reagan thought acid rain came from the trees. <laughs> he insisted that the Americans had to take it seriously, that it was a common problem that the acid falling from the sky didn't respect borders, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he never gave up. And eventually, when Mr. Bush became president uh, and we had support from the Senate, uh, we got the deal done. So, you know, those were two of the moments that I guess I will remember most avidly because I don't think there's been anything uh, anything such since. There were uh, in the relationship of that magnitude. There were difficult times, controversies, scandals, as you know, uh, okay. and concerns. So, how did he reflect on those? Did he did he see those those as mistakes? I wouldn't say he saw them as mistakes, but I think he saw them as part of the, you know, the pitfalls of politics. I mean, he's not the only is not the only administration that has had a fair share of scandals. Uh, but I don't think it, I don't think it upset him. I used to tease him that I was Doctor No and he was Doctor Yes <laughs> when I served in the PMO. So that when there was negative messages to be conveyed, I usually got the challenge, and when there were good messages to convey, he got the challenge. So it was a mutual relationship of that kind. Derek Bernie, we could continue speaking many more stories to share, I'm sure, but we do have to leave it there for time. I appreciate you sharing those memories with us. My condolences again. Well. Thank you very much. He should be remembered well. Take care, sir. Derek Burney was Brian Mulroney's chief of staff. We reached him in Golden, Colorado.
The federal government's much-anticipated Pharmacare plan was revealed for the first time today, but don't expect zero-dollar receipts at your pharmacy anytime soon. After months of negotiations with the NDP, Health Minister Mark Holland tabled a bill outlining the framework of a plan that at first would only cover birth control and diabetes medication. How the government plans to pay for Pharmacare remains unclear. It's expected to cost billions. And the idea has had a frosty reception from Alberta and Quebec, who've already said they want out of the plan. Don Davies is the NDP's health critic. We reached him in Ottawa. Don Davies, Pharmacare was one of the main demands from your party, from the NDP, to keep this Liberal government in power. Does this plan really deliver on that promise of national Pharmacare? It absolutely does, Neil. I, I think it's a historic day in Canada. Uh, we introduced groundbreaking legislation in Parliament that will improve the health and financial well-being of millions of Canadians. And uh, as you say, it's a product of the agreement that New Democrats negotiated uh, that will see the first prescription medicines in Canadian history delivered through our public health care system. And it, it builds the foundation for the future expansion to include all medications. So I think it more than meets the uh, the spirit and the, the the letter of our confidence supply agreement. But it is a framework at this point, not a fully costed plan. Your the the original agreement you have with the Liberals required the government to pass a quote Canada Pharmacare Act by the end of last year. That didn't happen, as we know. This framework covers just diabetes and contraceptive drugs. So why put this through in this in this way now? It's not what you originally promised or wanted. Well, our, our confidence supply agreement says that we are to make progress towards national universal pharmacare by introducing legislation and by establishing a bulk buying program and an essential medicines list by the end of the agreement. Um, this uh, legislation, I think, easily meets that test. In fact, I think it exceeds it, Neil, because what it does is it actually delivers two major classes of drugs, that's diabetes medications and devices, which was a key demand of the NDP, and contraceptions, or contraceptives, pardon me. And uh, that's going to see millions of Canadians actually receive drugs through the single-payer system, whereas our previous Canada Pharmacare Act would have simply set a structure without necessarily resulting in delivery. So I think it's the best of both worlds, and, and we're we're very pleased with it. Do you trust this government, the Liberal government, to, to execute this plan in an efficient and in a way, in a manner that, that, that will help the most Canadians? Well, um, we forced all of the commitments to be in writing and in legislation. And, uh, you know, I think that's what a responsible opposition does. Um, you know, we've seen this promise before, Neil, by the Liberals. They, they, made, they made this promise 30 years ago. And so we knew that we had to get clear legislative commitments. Uh, there will be a uh, statement in the budget. And uh, the legislation actually commits the government to proceed through a single-payer, first-dollar coverage system with the provinces and territories. And if this, this government, the Liberal government, is not in power next year, what then? Well, that's a real fear. Um, you know, Pierre Polyev, I think, refuses to commit to this. In fact, I, I think his statement was to the effect that um, that he uh, he thinks that uh, this plan isn't worth it. And I think he's dead wrong on that. And I'm worried that he will take this away. I mean, well, I believe he said that, that a lot of people get, get their medications covered anyway through work and, and don't need this. 
Well, he's wrong about that, and uh, dead wrong about that. And uh, there's millions of Canadians that do not get universal access to the full range of diabetes medications uh, or the devices, which are a really important part of this deal. You know, the glucose monitors, the insulin pumps, the syringes, and the test strips cost your average person money out of pocket, sometimes thousands of dollars a year. I mean, there was a 12-year-old girl at our announcement today who was talking about how her mother had to wake her up every 90 minutes when she was sleeping to prick her finger to test her blood sugars. Um, imagine dropping your, your, your child off at school and having them uh, have to test their, their own blood sugars every hour. Now we can make sure every child in this country has a glucose monitor and an insulin pump. Um, like th- these are the kind of things that will make sure that everybody has as a matter of right, not as a matter of privilege. And there are millions of Canadians who do not have that coverage today. Uh, Mr. Polyev is wrong. And uh, Canadians have to know that the Conservatives, if they were elected, would likely take these away from Canadians. And I think that's, that's bad for health policy. It's bad economics because we know that public pharmacare saves money. One of the criticisms uh, of, of this idea is that this is money, billions, that the government doesn't have to work with right now. Well, um, we have always taken the position that um, public pharmacare has to be uh, pursued incrementally. Um, we're okay with that. You know, the, our, our healthcare system, Neil, wasn't built overnight. It, it took time, and we understand that. But what equally what we understand is that every single major study from the Hoskins Advisory Council to the, the House of Commons Health Committee to the Romano Report to the uh, Citizens' Assembly on, on uh, Pharmacare has always come to the same conclusion. Two PBO reports that once fully implemented, uh, single-payer pharmacare will save our system billions of dollars, anywhere between 4 and $11 billion a year. You know, uh, pharmaceuticals are the single fastest growing element in our healthcare system. We spend more on drugs uh, last year than we did on doctors. It's growing exceeding the rate of inflation. So uh, I think uh, single-payer pharmacare is a way to reorganize the way that we we deliver pharmaceuticals in this country, not only in a more fair way to make sure that everybody gets it with their health card, not a credit card, but also as a means of cost containment. So it's smart health policy and it's very smart economic policy to pursue single-payer pharmacare. Just, just like our, our Medicare system is an efficient, cost-effective and fair way to deliver health services. If you look to the United States, just south of us, you see that they pay more per capita delivering health care than we do and they don't cover every citizen. But you know a lot of people are concerned about how our how our system uh, is operating or, or not serving people uh, as well as it could r- right now. But but I abs- but I hear what what you're saying there. I do want to ask you. You know that there are provinces already saying Alberta and Quebec that they're going to opt out uh, of this plan. Does that worry you? How are you going to sell this plan to the provinces? Um, well, first of all, I, I, I think it's never good governance when when anybody in politics rejects a plan that they haven't seen. Uh, that speaks more to ideology than it does to good public policy. But here's how I would approach it with the provincial premiers and territorial leaders. If the federal government says to a province, you keep paying what you're paying now, and we will provide additional funding over and above that to enable you to provide universal coverage for every citizen in your province for all diabetes class and contraception class drugs, why would you not take that? Don Davies, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks so much, Neil. Don Davies is the NDP's health critic. We reached him in Ottawa.
It was the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. In October of 2017, from a hotel window dozens of floors up, a gunman opened fire on music festival goers on the Las Vegas Strip. He killed 58 people. Hundreds more were injured. Part of the reason for those unthinkable numbers is that the gunman's weapons were fitted with bump stocks, devices that allow semi-automatic rifles to fire rapidly, hundreds of bullets per minute. The year after the shooting, under the Trump administration, bump stocks were redefined as machine guns, making them illegal. But now that ban is in question. Yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a case arguing that the federal government overstepped. Robert Gaffar is a survivor of the Las Vegas shooting. We reached him in Long Island, New York. Robert, nearly seven years on now, does that day, the day of the shooting, feel further away or is it still close? You know, there are days that it does feel uh, further away, but it, there are too many days where, where it does feel too close. Obviously, with the Supreme Court case yesterday, brought back a lot of memories. And obviously, with the unfortunate, you know, daily cases of gun violence in the U.S., it brings back harsh memories from that night, unfortunately. How do you manage those memories? And, and can you share, if you're comfortable sharing with them? I know another survivor talked about the sound of that day always being present. Yeah, I think, you know, I, of course, it's close to seven years, but there's not a day that, that doesn't go by where I don't think about it. There are, you know, triggers that bring back memories, certainly, you know, loud noises. Um, July 4th in the U.S. Is, is never fun for gun violence survivors. And of course, I'm a dad of young kids. You know, when there are certainly school shootings and stuff, those those are very difficult to process, um, as all um, cases of gun violence are. But certainly those um, hit a bit harder than, you know, a typical uh, everyday kind of gun violence that's in the news in New York. So how do you cope with it? Um, I try to keep, you know, personally just try to keep busy with my, with my children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, you can't get kind of too caught up. You know, kind of letting your mind wander uh, about, you know, those days and so forth. Certainly, I've spoken to professional help back then uh, when I went through this, um, realizing that, you know, it wasn't normal to experience something like that. But really, just personally, just my kids help a lot, just trying to, you know, obviously keep me busy. A lot of laughs, a lot of love as well. So, A lot of the conversation at the court yesterday focused on the mechanics of guns themselves, whether these bump stocks fit the federal definition of a machine gun. There were also suggestions that this should have been a a move made by Congress, uh, not a federal administrative body, in this case, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives. When you hear that that back and forth about definitions, you know, what goes through your mind? What is a bump stock to you? Uh, I mean, it's a machine gun. I mean, I lived through the horror of that day. And, you know, before, you know, kind of, realizing afterwards what exactly the type of weapons and the device that was used, the sound of that was it was a machine gun um, that was shooting at us and the bullets from those from those guns that were going right over myself and feeling shock waves from those bullets. And so it's it's frustrating personally that this is back in the news and mm-hmm. it's being discussed and, and it's in front of the Supreme Court of all places. It's it's just wild. But at the time, you know, myself and other survivors went down to Washington, D.C. just a month after um, the tragic event to basically persuade legislators to pass a law to specifically ban bump stocks. And, you know, we were unsuccessful with that. And, you know, obviously, President Trump went the route of having the ATF uh, regulate bump stocks. But that was an easy off-ramp 
for Republican lawmakers to not put a vote to this. And so in the back of my mind, I always feared that this this might potentially this day might come, especially with the Supreme Court kind of going a bit more extreme on on uh, gun rights um, compared to gun safety. We spoke to you uh, on this show uh, after the shooting in 2017, just a month after it happened, when you had gone to Washington. We just want to play for our listeners a, a short clip of what you said about why it was important to do that. It's been a month and nothing has been done. And for me, it's a, it's a you know a personal responsibility now that you know what I experience is, is you know should never happen again. I just feel like every day that goes by that we don't do anything is another day that something like this can happen again. And it has, as we know, and as you've said in our conversation today, happened again and again. When you hear your voice back, you know, so soon after the shooting to where you are now, how do you process where we're at or where your country is at specifically? I mean, it's it's difficult. There certainly have been wins from like a local uh, level, from a state level, like New York. You know, New York itself has passed um, red flag laws, has banned bump stocks. Um, has done some other great work as well, but we really need federal level legislation. You know, as we always say in this movement, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, but personally, of course, it's extremely frustrating. Um, it's, we need change immediately because every day that goes by, it's going to be more and more people that are unfortunately killed uh, by guns that should still be with us. And so it's, it's tragic, but, you know, looking back then, it's, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm never going to give up. And so, you know, I'm grateful to be working within this movement and volunteering my time. Um, but again, it is extremely frustrating that um, we're not moving as fast as that we need. Michael Cargill is the gun shop owner at the center of this case. Uh, he spoke to The New York Times and said bump stocks appeal to, to people who are injured or, or disabled. Veterans, for example, he's pointed out and he's, he, he says need support firing a gun or, quote, by people who just want to have fun, end quote. What do you say to people who agree with Mr. Cargill? I mean, it, it's it's like it's laughable. It's it's insulting. It's also disgusting. The he's not he's marketing bump stock to the general public um, and, uh, you know, obviously only cares about profit and bump stops uh, make money for him. Um, and so I just it's just it's more than common sense than anything. It's uh, why would you ever need a device that helps you fire uh, 800 rounds a minute? Um, it's just it's incomprehensible. Robert, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak with us. Do take care. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Robert Gaffar is a survivor of the 2017 Las Vegas shooting. He's in Long Island. In the aftermath of 9-11, you would have assumed that the main objective of American operatives questioning detainees would have been to extract information about 9-11. But according to testimony at a military tribunal at Guantanamo Bay this week, interrogators weren't seeking confessions. They were seeking intelligence. And when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed tried to give them a confession, they tortured him. More precisely, they did what a psychologist involved in his interrogation described as walling that is, repeatedly slamming his head against a wall. James E. Mitchell is one of two psychologists who helped develop the CIA's interrogation program after September 11th, and he did that after an unforgettable speech by the president. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. 
either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Then U.S. President George W. Bush speaking to Congress after September 11th, 2001. Now five men are facing the death penalty for their involvement in the attacks of 9-11, but their convictions could be compromised by the fact that much of the evidence against them is believed to be tainted by torture. It's the kind of dilemma foretold in a book released last year by psychologist Roy Idelson. He's a member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology and past president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility. His book, Doing Harm, argues that in the wake of September 11th, countless members of his profession did harm. Mr. Idelson spoke with Neil when the book was published this past September. From our archives, here's that conversation. Roy, George W. Bush gave that speech 10 days after 9-11. Did you have any sense then of what was to come for your profession? For my profession, psychology, no. But it was clear that the the war on terror was going to defy international norms, U.S. principles for how how we treat people. Because even before Bush said that, uh, Vice President Dick Cheney was on Meet the Press, and he told the national television audience that we are going to work the dark side. Uh, we are going to have to make sure that the hands of our operatives aren't tied, and we're going to essentially have to go to places that we don't typically go mm. to keep Americans safe. Did you think that your your colleagues and the association that you belong to would be drawn in in the way that your book outlines? I didn't think the American Psychological Association would move as quickly as it did in that direction, in part because right after 9-11, the APA did what I think were some really great things, kind of psychology at its best. They activated a disaster response network along with the American Red Cross. They sent thousands of pro bono psychologists to help families deal with the tragedy, to help schools. But it did not take long for the APA to kind of embrace the war on terror. Uh, I think they saw it as an opportunity to expand the role of psychology, and they wanted a seat at the table of the kind of military intelligence establishment here, and that meant doing the bidding of the the Pentagon, the CIA. And we now know, and we've known for quite a while, that the Office of Legal Counsel memos, the so-called 2002 torture memos, specified that certain techniques, what were then called enhanced interrogation techniques, would always require that a psychologist be present. And the claim that the White House made was if a psychologist is present, given that psychologists believe in doing no harm, that will guarantee that detainees are not harmed by these techniques. You write in your book quite a bit about two psychologists in particular, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen, and, and people who, who may have seen the Adam Driver and Ed Benning film from 2019 called The Report. 
they'll remember that, that those two men I just named were, were at the center of that film. But we have we have uh, a little bit of tape um, from what the actual right. James Mitchell told ACLU lawyers at a deposition in 2017. And re- these recordings were obtained by the New York Times. Let's play that. I mean, you thought waterboarding was a bad thing, was a, a, a painful thing, right? No, I thought it, I thought it could be done safely. I thought he would be uncomfortable. It sucks, mm-hmm. you know. It's, uh, I don't know that it's painful. Uh, well, I saw an interview. But it's distressing. Mm-hmm. I saw an interview with you. Where you said it would, as between uh, somebody breaking their leg and somebody being waterboarded, most people would choose to have their leg broken. Do you remember saying that in an interview? No. They probably would prefer you break their legs because it's less distressing, oddly enough. Okay. Now, you're using the word painful. I'm using the word distressing. The okay. Two things are not synonymous in my okay. mind. What role did he and other psychologists play in developing methods like waterboarding? Well, Mitchell and Jessen, they had been involved in what is called SEER training. And that stands for survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. The idea being if U.S. soldiers were caught by countries that did not observe the Geneva Conventions. How can we train them to resist what's going to be done to them? Of course, it's very different because most obviously the soldiers knew this was training and they also knew they could stop it whenever they wanted to. And they may not be able to be in a certain program as a result, but they're out of the situation. Being a detainee in the war on terror is anything but that. And it's, I think it's worth noting that, you know, for example, almost 800 Muslim men and boys were at Guantanamo at one point or another, and thousands more were el- were prisoners elsewhere almost none of them had significant roles in al-qaeda or in international terrorism so mitchell and jessen developed kind of a program of interrogation it was basically a torture program they brought it to the cia the cia embraced it and it began being used on detainees at what are called CIA black sites. And Mitchell and Jessen created a firm that was paid $81 million for the work they were doing. It was certainly controversial, as we've said. It was lucrative, as you just said. But another point that you that you raise and you write about is that it was known that those methods don't work. Right. In fact, there's science, psychological science, that shows that torture doesn't work. It will what it will do is it will you can get someone to make a false confession. What you can't get is reliable information, but it seemingly didn't matter, you know, in part because the war on terror, in my view, was about vengeance. You're listening to As It Happens. I'm Neil Kirksal, and I'm speaking to psychologist Roy Idelson about his new book. It's called Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War 
on terror. Roy, I want to talk a little bit about the impact that it had on you to raise concerns, because you're just not just writing this book now. You and others, other members of the APA, were raising your concerns all along the way. And, and you describe that, that you, you, you kind of became known as the dissidents because you were so critical with this, with this engagement with torture very early on. You were pushing back. How did they respond? Well, we pushed back as more and more information became available publicly. And the dissident psychology community grew more and more. There are people who resigned from the APA over the torture issue. I was among them. And as we pushed the APA to change its ethics policies, the pushback was sometimes extreme. One technique the APA used certainly was stonewalling. You know, if we just ignore what's going on, let's ignore what they're saying, and maybe no one will notice. When that didn't work, at times, they would take steps to discredit us. You know, some of the quotes that appeared in public places, ones I remember by heart, uh, one APA president referred to us as opportunistic commentators masquerading as scholars. What was that they, like to, to hear that? It <laughs> It's angering. Still? Um, yeah, it's, there's an absurd quality to it as well. Um, we had to deal with that regularly. Um, another, you know, for example, now former APA president seemingly compared us to the Dementors in the world of Harry Potter. And I wasn't sure who the Dementors were. <laughs> and apparently they're frightening cloaked figures who feed on human happiness. Um, but they also, there were pushback in, in other ways. Um, one of our members was subjected to an ethics complaint uh, that fortunately was ultimately thrown out but not without whatever disruption it caused to his professional life. Uh, I know, you know, another close colleague of mine um, was part of a, had a defamation lawsuit filed against him and that disrupted his life for years, um, you know, until that case was also closed. So, I guess I would say it became an important part of our identity. The the work we were doing, we felt was was crucial. It was crucial both in terms of the harm that was being done, and we felt it was crucial in terms of the future of our profession. Guantanamo Bay is very central to your book and what was going on at that time and, and still Last year marked the 20th anniversary of, of Guantanamo Bay opening. And on this program, we aired an interview with retired Marine Corps Major General Michael Lehnert. And he was one of the prison's chief architects. And he told us that his early warnings about the potential pitfalls were, were ignored because Americans saw the world as they wanted it to be rather than as it was. Is he right in your view about the country's psyche at that time? 
I I would agree with him entirely. And the country psyche was what the White House wanted it to be. That was nurtured. Um, you know, I referred to kind of false narratives. Another important one was that the people at Guantanamo were the worst of the worst. They weren't. Many of them, again, had no connection whatsoever to anything that should have made them part of the war on terror. But Americans as a whole believe that. And polling has been done ever since 9-11, asking, do you think torture is acceptable in dealing with a suspected terrorist? And about 50% of Americans basically say yes. In 2009, we had Joan Molinaro on our program. Her son was a firefighter. He was killed in the North Tower on September 11th. And in this clip, she's reacting to Barack Obama's promise then to close Guantanamo Bay. That promise was not kept. Have a listen. I think everyone's entitled to their human rights, and I think everyone should be treated that way. Unfortunately, that's not how it is. Americans are not treated um, humanely if they're caught in Iran or in Afghanistan. Um, the people in the World Trade Center were not treated humanely. They were innocent people who were murdered by these animals. And, you know, I have to say at some point, why do we allow our conscience to say enough and then these people just walk over us? When do we stand up and say, no, we won't take this anymore. We, we are not going to go by the civilian, the civility that you expect of us when it's not given to us. When do we get angry enough to really do something and say it doesn't matter that, you know, we're infringing on some of his civil rights? What would you say to, to people such as Ms. Molinaro who may believe, the, you know, the tactics your book describes to be justified in some cases? Well, I can easily appreciate her pain, and her anger. What we did, though, as a result of 9-11 was a massive effort that accomplished very little. And ironically, in a way, those who were involved in planning the 9-11 attacks, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and others, they have not been brought to trial because of the fact they were tortured, because that evidence is not acceptable in a U.S. courtroom, or at least that's contested. The, uh, the other thing I'll note is the families of the immediate victims of 9-11 are a diverse group in terms of what they want. For example, an issue that is unfolding right now is whether or not to accept a plea agreement whereby those accused of plotting 9-11 admit their guilt and as a result there will be no death penalty and there are many 9-11 families who wanted that plea agreement because they wanted the closure and they wanted justice it's complicated it's you know we're at the point now where there's no 
answers aren't easy and the pain is real and the and minds aren't easy to change no they're not we've talked roy about how you you name names in this book what do you believe should happen to those psychologists who were in the room who were involved in these torture tactics it's a question of accountability and it's not just accountability for the individuals it's accountability for the APA and for the profession, you would think that someone, some psychologist somewhere in the 50 states would have en encountered loss of licensure mm -hmm. over what they did during the war on terror. It has never happened. That uh, I think that is a sign, One, I guess one of the signs that the profession has not really worked through these very serious issues. Yeah, you know, on one hand, there, there, there has been, you know, you say as well that there are still, in your view, quote, powerful forces within the association that, that are concerning to you. On the other hand, you know, in 2015, the APA met actually in Toronto. They passed a resolution acknowledging what you and the other dissidents, as you've called yourselves, had been had been saying for, for such a long time. Uh, the senior leadership, much of that leadership was ousted, but it sounds like, you know, that, that change hasn't been as lasting or as concrete as you would have hoped it would be. That's exactly right. What though, That was a great moment, but as soon as those reforms were instituted, and one is there's a prohibition on psychologists being involved in national security interrogations. And another is psychologists are prohibited from working at Guantanamo or other sites deemed unlawful by the UN unless they're working directly for the detainees or they're providing mental health care for the military personnel there. So those were two really important changes. And as soon as they were approved, there was pushback from military psychologists who were in some way connected to the counterterrorism efforts. And just last month, the APA's governing body approved a set of practice guidelines for what are called operational psychologists. And these guidelines hardly mention the abuses and horrors of what psychologists did during the war on terror. And there's no mention of the prohibition on where psychologists cannot work. There's also, you know, kind of, to me, it captures something similar. When in 2015, the leadership of the APA officially apologized to the membership of the APA and to the international community of psychologists what APA has never officially done is apologize to the victims of torture and abuse and their families and their communities. And we called for this as recently as just a year ago. We also called for them to make financial contributions to organizations that support the victims of torture and abuse and their families, you know, kind of by providing psychological care 
and other other resources. This would have been and still would be an easy thing for the APA to do. Just before we let you go, the apology you mentioned that was made to people within the association, do you accept that apology? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I am glad the apology was made. So yes, I accept the apology, but it loses some meaning. It loses some value if now the APA just slips back toward doing or supporting the kinds of things that they were apologizing for back then. Roy, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Glad to have had this opportunity. Roy Idelson is the author of Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. He spoke with Neil this past September 11th from just outside Philadelphia. At the time, a spokesperson for the APA told us, quote, the American Psychological Association has a clear policy with respect to psychologists working in national security settings. Psychologists should only be present if they are treating detainees or personnel who work in such settings or are performing activities other than interrogations. Unquote. Listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 after Your World Tonight. And you can, of course, also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.